it's a joy for all of us to come another sunday and worship this god um i was just thinking about when prashant was sharing from isaiah 6 about the seraphims covering their face and their feet seeing the majesty of this great and high god and then this same god comes down to earth and washes the feet of his of his disciples and then goes to the extent of dying on the cross a brutal death for the sake of this these enemies who can be adopted as his children as the children of the father and brothers of jesus christ oh what a mystery meekness and majesty coming together which leads us to bow down and worship and that's what sunday mornings is about i want to extend a warm welcome to all of you uh members there is visitors um we have friends from gbf so a few of them this morning and I, we also have a very special newly wedded couple murli and kanchana with us uh it's a joy for us to come together and worship um we are in the book of ephesians like how most of you know but for those who you don't know we are in ephesians 4 um and thank you jonathan for jonathan is somewhere here oh here okay thank you jonathan for uh reading god's word to us so as we continue our series looking at the church in ephesus we now come to the second half of ephesians 4 beginning in verse 25 last week brother raven took us through the paragraph before this passage which was beginning at verse 17 and it is so important to put the paragraph which is from verse 17 to 24 as context to verse 25 onwards because if we don't do that we would run straight to verse 25 and it will become a lesson for us in righteousness by our own works and moralism a set of rules that we need to abide by a set of rules that we need to adhere to instead of understanding that these put on and put off statements that paul makes are something that grows out of our life in christ we also need to remember the context of this letter to the ephesian church in its entirety because in the first 3 chapters of this book of ephesians we have indicatives what we call indicatives paul indicates our new position in christ he indicates he shows us that god sorry what god has done on our behalf in us and for us and through the person and the work of jesus christ and so he says these are the things he has done for you and so this is what it means for us however there are no imperatives in the first three chapters which means that the focus in the first three chapters is not about doing things we are in the first three chapters we are told who we are because of what christ has done and it's only when we get into the second half of the book which is chapter 4 onwards where we find the imperatives things that we are called to do to do 
But those things that we do are directly connected to what Christ has done on our behalf in the first three chapters of Ephesians. So what that means to us is, because of our new position in Christ and because of our new identity in Christ, he then equips us and prepares us to do these things which he mentions in these three chapters or in the second half of the book of Ephesians from chapter 4 onwards. Please notice and look at your Bibles on on how he ends chapter 3, how Paul ends chapter 3. It says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can think or ask. So all of these things that we are that is going to be done in chapter 4 onwards, we count on them being done because of him who is able to do more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. And how does he do it? He does it according to the power at work within us. Not according to our own ability or desire to dig deeper the truths of the word. Not according to him choosing the best, the cream, the 1% of the world. But according to the power that is at work within us, which then leads to the glory belonging only to him and him alone. And so with that context, we come to chapter 4. And before we dwell on verse 25 onwards, I want to read to us verses from 17 to 24 that we read last week. Because like I mentioned earlier, that paragraph is very important as context to what we are going to learn today. Paul is talking about renewing our mind and putting on the new man and putting off the old man. And I'm hoping that we had a great discussion and could dig out thoughts from this passage in our cell groups. Let's read. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the heart to their hardness of heart they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity but that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus and then here we are called, and, and here, here's what we are called to do, and Brother Raven stressed upon it last week, verse 22 onwards, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful des- desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So that's the principle here. That's what we are called to do. To put off the old self and to put on the new self. But what does that really look like in practice? How do we really do this putting off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on this new self? And we see examples for here, for us here when we get to verse 25 onwards. 
And it firstly says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That's the first example. Example number two, verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Example number three, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Number four, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then finally he says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ also forgive, forgave you. Now Paul, by the inspiration of God, is dealing with five familiar sins, but he deals with these sins in, a, in an exceptional way, in a remarkable way. He's not trying to embarrass the Ephesian church here by calling their sins out. He's trying to help them by giving them examples from daily life. And it is good for you and me to listen to what scripture says about these five sins as examples because it tells us how we can overcome them. Now, sometimes we may think that overcoming our sin comes by excessive introspection. Introspection is important and necessary. But overcoming our sin happens when we daily study our Bibles and when we apply what we learned from this study of ours in the context of our daily life and in the context of our daily relationships, not by excessive or morbid introspection. Now, these verses that Paul puts forward for us are, it's, are not an exhaustive list by any stretch of imagination, but it's an application of the principle that we saw in the verse from, verses from 17 to 25. And so the question can be asked this way, in light of what God has done in us and for us through the person and work of Christ, by which we are doing this putting off and renewing and putting on our new self, what does that really look like for us to apply it? What does that practically look like for us to apply it? The first one Paul mentions in verse 25 is, therefore, is therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The first thing we note here is that Paul does not say, therefore, put away falsehood. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, or since we have put away falsehood. So then the question arises, how have we put away this falsehood? We have put away this falsehood by putting on Christ. Because we are people, by virtue of belonging to Christ now, we have put away our old person and therefore put away 
falsehood so that is a that is a that is a matter that paul already takes into consideration coming to christ brings us out of darkness into his marvelous light and then the verse says because sorry because we have put away falsehood now let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor why why does it say that what does your bible say for we are members of one another it's interesting in the first half of the book we have all these indicators of who we are in christ but there we are not told about the doing things in the second half we are finally getting to the things we do and there is a likelihood for us to think that paul was trying to say okay now in the first three was chapters you know everything about the gospel you know everything about what christ has done for you you know uh, who you are in christ so now start doing get to it that's not what he does he doesn't spend the first half of the book talking about salvation about the gospel about jesus and the second half of the book saying follow these rules now we might be tempted to think that way because we have a natural tendency towards moralism and works based righteousness and even when we are reminded of the essential nature of the gospel here's what we tend to do we tend to say oh yes i mean jesus gospel salvation these are the main things and none of this is possible without salvation but after saying that soon after that we run after the rules and say follow the rules follow the rules follow the rules that's not what paul does he doesn't spend the first three chapters of ephesians saying salvation gospel jesus and the second half saying just go and follow the rules notice again in verse 25 therefore having put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor but then he says why for we are members of one another this is significant because he just doesn't say what to do but he goes to the indicative that he mentions in the in chapter 2 of who we are members of one another let me remind you of where that is in chapter 2 look at chapter 2 and verse 14 in your bibles we will look at from 14 to 22 i don't have it on the slide so please look at your bibles verse 14 for he himself is our peace who has made us both one us both as jew and gentiles here and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two this one new man is this church so making peace and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and he's talking about gentiles and peace to those who were near and he's talking about the jews for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets christ jesus being himself being the cornerstone in 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here we see what Christ has done. This is who he made us. He has reconciled us to himself and to one another so that now we belong to one another. Church, we belong to one another. We are part of the same body of Christ. You are a member of Christ's body and I am a member of Christ's body. We belong to one another now. So when I lie to you, I am hurting you and I am hurting myself as members of the same body. Let me take, let me take an example of members of the physical body to explain this. Say if, your, uh, say if your hand touches something hot, but your hand tells your brain that the thing is cool, your hand will be severely burnt. And that's why telling the truth is very important. Because we are members of one another in the church. Else we will become seriously injured. Do you know why there are times when we don't want to speak the truth with one another? Broadly, there are two reasons for it. It's either because of pride or it's because of fear. We are either too proud to be caught in sin and so we lie. Or we are afraid to get caught in sin, so we lie. Or maybe afraid of hurting the other person, and so we choose to lie. Scripture calls us to speak the truth in love, and we don't need to be afraid to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, the same chapter that we are going through, verse 15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, Something happens here. We are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. So we won't be able to grow up in every way into him who is our head into Christ if we don't speak, speak the truth in love. So he says in verse 25, Therefore having put away falsehood, therefore because you and I have this exchange that took place that brought us back to God and to one another, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? Because now we are truly able to speak the truth because of what Christ has done for us. For we are members of one another. He's bringing us back to Christ. He's not just setting a rule and saying, you better follow it. A body can function properly only if it tells itself the truth. Truthful speech is essential and integral to unity in the body. Now, though this verse talks about speaking the truth with believers, it doesn't mean that we can go about lying to unbelievers. Fair? Why? Because we belong to the God of truth as Christians. Also, just think about it. If unbelievers see that you're lying or they catch you lying, it severely affects your testimony with them. And how do you intend to share with them the gospel of truth when you yourself are not truthful? 
And so therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry and do not sin. Does it say, don't be angry? Yes, no? Okay. It doesn't say, don't be angry. Anger is an emotion. Anger, as defined by the Oxford Dictionary, is a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. And sometimes, and in some cases, it's right to be angry. It's right and it is even godly to experience a strong feeling of displeasure or hostility in certain situations. So the Bible doesn't say you can never be angry because we see in scripture that there is a right form of anger and that's what we should portray. God gets angry. He's angry with the wicked every day. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 and I'll read it for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now the wrath of God which is the most intense form of anger and hell is a place where God will pour out this wrath for eternity. So we see that there is a place for anger. And there is a rightful place for anger. So again, this is why the text says, be angry and don't sin. Because there are things that ought to make us angry. There are things that are corrupt and disgusting and evil that ought to create a righteous anger, a righteous indignation in us. But righteous indignation and righteous anger has to be in its proper place. And where is its proper place? Its proper place is when we are angry at the same things that God in His righteousness is angry about. A few examples of this could be child abuse, abortion, pornography, racism, and the like. Secondly, it's also important that this anger should be expressed in a way that is designed to reflect God's righteousness and not in a way to defend my own rights. Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we are not to avenge ourselves. Anger that is vengeful on my behalf is sinful anger and therefore unrighteous anger. When is anger unrighteousness? Sorry, unrighteous. Broadly, we can say anger is unrighteous when it is centered around three things. Anger is unrighteous when it is centered around three things. When it is centered around our will being done. When it is centered on our standards being met. When it is centered on we being respected or honored. When it is centered on our will being done, when it is centered on our standards being met, when it is centered on we being respected or honored. And generally speaking, these are the areas where we typically see unrighteous anger. 
but the new born person in Christ, the person who's born again and made a new creation, knows how to let go of his self-seeking wrath. And so giving no opportunity to the devil. You know, I've heard people who say that, you know, I, I just can't stop getting angry. When I get angry, I've lost it. Scripture tells us that the newborn person in Christ knows how to let go of his or her self-seeking wrath. James 1, 19 and 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Psalm 37, verse 8 and 9. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer will be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. The psalmist is talking about anger that pours itself out in an uncontrolled wrath. Fret not yourself. What does that mean? That means holding on to it, letting it fester inside because it only leads to evil when you let it fester and then it grows into bitterness. And then it says, for the evildoer shall be cut off. God will pour out his wrath on all evil. But on the other hand, those who wait on the Lord, for the Lord, sorry, shall inherit the land. Verse 27 of Ephesians 4 that we were reading says that it is also important to deal with anger appropriately. Because if we do not do so, Satan will have an opportunity to lead us into further sin and wrath. So even what makes me angry needs to be directed by this truth and how I express that anger and to what end I express that anger needs to be controlled by this truth that we are members of one another. We are members of Christ and we are members of one another. Now it's important, let's not disconnect this verse from the previous verse. Connecting, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, from what came before this is important because we are members of one another and because we are members of the body of Christ. Just think about it. What a disaster it would be if my left hand got angry with my right hand while I'm driving and my left hand says to my right hand, I'm not going to work with you a disaster waiting to happen, right? Now, some of you are really smart drivers would say, I can drive with one hand, but that's not what I'm talking about. Along with this, we need to remember to not prolong anger. Deal with sin quickly, which is what it means to not let the sun go down on your anger. Doesn't mean if you fight in the morning, wait till the evening to sort it out. It means hasten to settle things quickly. Romans 12 verse 18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
verse 28 let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that we may have something to share with anyone in need again this is an illustration to point the same general principle that we are members of one another when you look at verse 26 about about anger and you can't divorce it from verse 25 that fact that we belong to one another that same argument is strengthened by the fact that here in verse 28 when he says let the thief no longer steal but instead let him labor why just because it's wrong to steal surely it is wrong to steal but that's not the ultimate goal he's getting to here. He says, don't steal, but labor with your own hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. That's the understanding here. We belong to one another. We don't steal from one another. We give to one another. Stealing is selfishness, but Christian living is Christ-like living, which is generous and which is selfless. Now think about this for a moment. How many of us would lift up our voices and pray saying, thank you, Lord, that I have a job that I can give now. We might say, thank you, Lord, that I have a job so that I can pay my bills. And don't get me wrong, that is good. But Paul is raising the standard here because we belong to Christ now and we belong to one another. Verse 29. Verse 29 also gives us an example of this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. In simple words, Paul is saying, put off rotten talk and put on edifying talk. The new person that God has created in us knows how to watch his tongue speaking only what is good for necessary edification and desiring to impart grace to all that hear that person. Anything that injures others or causes divisions in the body is defiling and rotten. Church, we are called to use words to build up people for edification rather than to tear them down. So can I request you, if you are in the faith, if you are a born-again believer, use your words as a gift, as a blessing. Don't just vomit it out. Use your words as a gift and a blessing. Now, it's important that we have to connect verse 30 to this verse because taking verse 30 out of context can lead to terrible interpretations of that verse. So we connect these two verses because there's a word and connecting this verse to verse 29. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does this mean? Let me explain this contextually and then maybe generally too. Contextually, because of the word and mentioned there, and this is mentioned in the Greek too, we need to connect the earlier thoughts. The first one, is our words. We don't let corrupting talk, or, lo uh, or like how it says in the Greek, corrosive talk, literally. Talk that is corrosive, that like acid, come out of our mouths. Don't let words 
come out of your mouth that have an effect of corroding and burning down like acid brothers and sisters there are words that we can speak to one another between husbands and wives between parents and children between one brother to another brother <clears throat> that can over time corrode and burn like acid and it can do far more damage than any punch or kick can ever this is why this text is so important do not let corrosive words come out of your mouths but words that build up that edify that encourage words that suit a believer and then he connects this to the next verse and says and do not grieve the holy spirit now when it comes to the interpretations of grieving the holy spirit you might it is possible that you might hear someone saying that if a child is crying in church you are grieving the holy spirit or when the cell phone rings in the church maybe the holy spirit is grieved but it is nothing of that sort in context it has everything to do with verse 29 verse 29 is about corrosive words again let's go back to chapter 2 to understand that chapter 2 verse 22 in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for god by the holy spirit so if the holy spirit is building us into a holy temple and a dwelling place for god but our words are tearing down and corroding like acid other members of that body whom the spirit is actively building up then it grieves the spirit it grieves him when we do that now apart from this understanding of the holy spirit we can grieve the holy spirit in other ways too and i'll quote charles spurgeon over here charles spurgeon said i think i now see the spirit of god grieving when you are sitting down to read a novel and there is your bible unread you have no time for prayer but the spirit sees you very active about worldly things and having many hours to spare for relaxation and amusement and then he is grieved because he sees that you love worldly things better than you love him spurgeon also said the holy spirit's grief is not of a petty oversensitive nature he is grieved with us mainly for our own sakes for he knows what misery sin will cost us he reads our sorrows in our sins he grieves over us before he, because he sees how much chastisement we incur chastisement means discipline or punishment and how much communion we lose verse 31 let all bitterness wrath and anger and clamor and slander put away from you along with all malice this fifth exhortation that paul talks about is to put a put off six corruptions and to put on three virtues let's go through them briefly maybe a one liner for all of them bitterness is the opposite of kindness it harbors resentment and keeps a record of wrongs done the next word is wrath <clears throat> wrath or rage flows from bitterness and refers to outbursts of uncontrolled passionate frustration 
Third is anger. Unrighteous anger is inappropriate anger and unsettled hostility that we have. Fourth word is clamor. Now, clamor is not a word that we typically use in our conversations. So, but clamor means shouting, yelling, screaming, and the like. So next time you hear shouting, screaming in the home, you can use the word clamor. Slander refers to words that hurt another person, particularly used in the context of character assassination. So the verse says, let all bitterness, wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you all, sorry, from you along with all malice. Malice is ill will toward another person or people and and malice is the source of the other five corruptions that we just saw here. If you have malice in your heart against a person or people, you will typically see it portrayed in these ways that is mentioned here. So that's what we put off. What do we put on? Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We are kind when we say or do what is suitable or fitting to a need with a very generous and a sweet nature. We are compassionate or tender-hearted when we are sympathetic about something or toward someone else. We are forgiving when we let offenses and grievances go freely and graciously. And so we are called to forgive again and again. Our forgiveness is based on two things. One, our relationship with one another. And two, most importantly, our forgiveness is based on our relationship with God who forgives us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why we are called or we should forgive because God has forgiven even our most grievous sins in Christ Jesus. Can you take a moment to think about the most grievous sin and how many times the Lord has forgiven you over it? He has cancelled all our debts and received us into his family. A theologian once said, it cost God the death of his son to forgive us. It costs us nothing to forgive our fellow man. It costs God the death of his son to forgive us. It costs us nothing to forgive our fellow man. In the light of the extent of God's forgiveness towards us, one person said this, let us put this plainly, since even pastors tend to misunderstand this, the moment a man wrongs me, I must forgive him. The moment a man forgives, wrongs me, I must forgive him. Can we take a moment to think about how much we have been forgiven? To summarize, how would we normally tend to read this passage, verse 25 to 32? If you have been a Christian for a while and uh, you have read through Ephesians 4, verse 25 to 32 before, your tendency would be to moralize it. We would tend to moralize it. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. This is good, this is bad. 
how much do we miss when we do that did god intend for verse 25 to 32 to just be a list of things that you and i try harder to be moralistic and legalistic about in this context absolutely not absolutely not especially when you recognize how this letter is so connected this letter to the ephesians is so connected one to another let me show you this i'll show you two things one look at chapter 4 verse 1 therefore i'm urging you to walk in this manner so he's saying that hey walk in this particular manner verse 4 verse 17 It says, "I'm urging you to no longer walk like Gentiles." So he's saying, "Walk in this manner. Don't walk in this manner." He's showing expressions of both. In verse 25, he goes, which is what we are doing this morning. He goes into explaining practical illustrations of what that really looks like. And now look at verse chapter five, verse one, which I'm not going to dwell on today, but it's important that we stop there. Now look at verse chapter five, verse one. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to god do you see that connection walk like this don't walk like this examples of how not to walk and then says what is the pinnacle that we are getting to notice one more thing chapter 4 verse 1 i therefore is what paul says Chapter 4 was 25 therefore chapter 5 was 1 therefore 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 let's not disconnect these three therefores in chapter 5 was 1 sorry i missed this i think oh yeah in chapter 5 was 1 therefore be imitators of god as beloved children what does that mean it means that we are not imitators of god as individuals who just have a rule book in front of us that we are trying to follow we are imitators of god like those who have been born of god's spirit adopted into god's family united with god through the person and the work of christ and we are continually conformed to the image of god through the ongoing sanctification of the spirit work in us how radically different is that from the person who's just sitting there with a list of rules trying to do their best to keep it how radically different is it from this and so i pray that our lord would grant us grace to be freed from this many of us have lived in this rule based living and it is frustrating it is overwhelming it is tiring and it is never satisfying because we can never get there but everything changes when we recognize that we have been purchased by the blood of christ that a great exchange has taken place our sinfulness has been granted placed on and placed into our account and christ's righteousness has been imputed on us sorry our sinlessness our sinlessness has been granted and placed on and placed into our account and our and christ's righteousness has been imputed to us and even beyond that even beyond legally being declared righteous we have been adopted by god we have been united by god we have been united with him through 
the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is not only our master, who is not only our Lord, who is not only our savior and king, but also our elder brother. And that we are being conformed to the image of this Jesus Christ by the same spirit who justifies and adopts us. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that sanctifies us. It is the person and the work of Christ who sanctifies and it is our union and our communion with him that sanctifies. And like how Philippians 2.13 reminds us that gives us everything that we need that works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Some of us, um, some of you hearing me today have never been born again. And you are yet to believe and place your trust in Christ alone for your eternal salvation. I encourage you not to let another day pass. Come and see this marvelous love of Christ and see that you need to change your mind about your sin. You need to have a change of mind about your sins and how God sees your sin. Your sin separates you from a holy God. And the only way the relationship between you and God can be reconciled, can be made right, can be healed is through the payment of Jesus' death which leads to forgiveness of our sins. Which is already, which he has already provided for you and me in Christ on the cross. This forgiveness, this forgiveness of Jesus Christ is a gift that can only be received by faith in Jesus. It's, it cannot be received in you and I being good enough to earn forgiveness. But when you place your trust and your faith in Christ and in the life he lived and the death he died on your behalf, he will wonderfully come into your life and save you. And once that wondrous work has happened, you can be in this wonderful life, in this wonderful journey with Jesus. And in this life, we are together fighting sin and we will seek to build each other up in the things of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, sin in the church grieves the Holy Spirit, hurting the members of the body. And it also means grieving the heart of Jesus who laid down his life for us, for the church. Therefore, I have a request for all of us, believers, unbelievers. Can we pray with David in Psalm 139? Can we pray, search me, O God, try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, try me and know my thoughts and let and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Shall we pray? To the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace. We thank you, Lord, because end to end it is your work. And many of us sitting here are recipients of this great work of salvation that you have done in our hearts. 
But Father, I also ask forgiveness because many of us who are saved do not see the greatness and the immense value of the salvation. Would you please show it to us? So that we may live this everlasting life that you have given us. So that we may take the help of the Holy Spirit in us to live out this Christian life that you have saved us into. Father, some of us are not saved sitting here. Would you have mercy on their hearts? Would you soften their hearts so that they can see their need of a Savior, a King, a Lord? And that they can be saved through Jesus Christ's work on the cross of Calvary for forgiveness of our sins. Father, I pray that your word will work in our hearts and minds through the week so that we may gain you in all these days of this week. We may have a fruitful discussion during cell group too or to understand you more and to and to rest in that understanding of how great and what a marvelous work you've done in our lives. And this we ask and we come to you in the name of our Lord and our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ.